Notre Dame College in South Euclid will close after this semester, the latest casualty in a financial crisis besetting public and private institutions of higher learning. The college's undergraduate students with at least 60 credit hours are eligible for guaranteed admission at a number of other institutions. An effort to have Cleveland State University absorb Notre Dame was not successful. We'll discuss that news and learn more about what led to the decision to close the college first up on the Sound of Ideas Reporters Roundtable. I'm Mike McIntyre. Glad you're with us. Other news on the roundtable agenda today, airlines have agreed to pay $175 million for the first phase of an estimated $3 billion 10-year renovation of Cleveland Hopkins International Airport. Fracking will happen at Salt Fork State Park and budget cuts will happen at the Cleveland Metropolitan School District. Former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder has appealed his conviction on bribery charges, arguing money from First Energy was a contribution protected by the First Amendment. First, the news. It's the Sound of Ideas Reporters Roundtable from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Mike McIntyre. Thanks for joining us. Notre Dame College in South Euclid, open since 1922, announced yesterday it'll shut its doors after this semester, succumbing to budget woes. Students can transfer to other institutions. A plan to cut $130 million from the Cleveland Metropolitan School District's budget has been approved by the school board. After-school programs with community partners will be eliminated, among other cuts. The city of Cleveland says it's reached an agreement with airlines to fund the first phase of what's expected to be a 10-year project to modernize Cleveland Hopkins International Airport. And despite emotional opposition, a state panel moved to grant out-of-state drillers exclusive rights to frack under Salt Salt Fork State Park and two state wildlife areas. Joining me to talk about those stories and a bunch more in studio, IdeaStream education reporter Connor Morris. Lucky we booked you today because there was going to be some news, and then yesterday there was big news. Yeah, right. Uh, I apologize to our listeners in advance for uh, having to hear me speak again. <laughs> yeah, for on a lot of stuff today, but it was so good to have you with us. And, Absolutely. of course, we've got Abby Marshall back again because we're still talking about city stuff and budget. Glad to have you in studio as well. Yay, budget. Yay, budget. <laughs> That's actually what Karen says every morning when she wakes up. Karen. And Kassler is with us in Columbus. It's not quite state budget time, but uh, plenty of stuff for you to talk about, too. Hey, good morning, and especially to my friends at the Hudson Library. I was up there this week for an event, and they do they bring in some great authors. They have a wonderful crowd. It, it's just terrific. I'm just really happy to have been a part of it. Yeah, the Hudson Library is uh, amazing. Uh, and by the way, speaking of that, I'm glad you brought it up, because we'll just start with the uh, Karen Praise Fest. Uh, Claudia in Kent says, wonderful conversation with Cassidy Hutchinson at Hudson Library Wednesday. What a treasure Karen Castler is to our community. Aww. Thank you, Karen, for all you do. All right, and that's Aww. the end of the show. Welcome. <laughs> Karen Lopez. Yeah, we can stop there. That's it. End on a high note. Exactly. All right, we're going to have to talk about the other news this week, though, too. And we don't take calls on the Friday Roundtable. Obviously, as you just saw, we take emails. So feel free to send us an email, soi at ideastream.org. You can find us on X, formerly Twitter, at Sound of Ideas. That's the way to get through. I check those out on my phone as we talk through the entire show here and right now let's get ready to roundtable the board president of notre dame college announced late yesterday that the south euclid institution will close at the end of the semester agreements have been reached with other schools for students to transfer and continue their education with comparable net tuition the college cited a down market in enrollment a demographic challenge facing institutions of higher learning everywhere and efforts to merge with two other institutions including cleveland state university were unsuccessful connor you've been reporting on these woes for a while still yesterday's announcement seemed to come as a surprise yeah, for for us, we'd really been hearing uh, rumors that the college was was potentially going to close for for a couple months now, 
It's been difficult to confirm it, and it's a difficult situation in general. You know, folks were, were hopeful that maybe, you know, uh, a solution could be reached. And the college said they really tried. I mean, uh, I think the biggest issue from what I could glean from the information we've got so far was the debt, uh, outstanding debt, really trying to figure out a way to kind of – they said they tried to refinance their debt, you know, using their pandemic relief money wisely. They tried to do a fundraising campaign. They tried to pursue those mergers, as you mentioned. So, yeah, I mean, but, yeah, it's unfortunately not necessarily a huge surprise to us here. And what they're facing and what all these higher institutions are facing, higher higher education institutions are facing, is a demographic shift in which there aren't as many college-age kids. So the pool that you would draw from is smaller, which means you're going to have more trouble filling your classrooms. Yeah, and these smaller private colleges it's just the the margins are much thinner for them you know you're talking about 1400 students at Notre Dame here a little less than that uh, versus you know a much larger institution you know Kent State you know 30,000 plus you know enrollment so it's there, there it's just you know if you do have budget problems and you can't really get your hands around them as enrollment declines, then that's your main source of revenue. Uh, state funding support has really been relatively flat, is what a lot of colleges are telling me. Um, you know, not necessarily even keeping up with inflation. So it's just been a tough world out there for higher ed institutions. Also, uh, where was I going with this? Um, oh, uh, so the, it's kind of also a little bit of a race to the bottom too. I think, as I was mentioning yesterday, with some of these colleges because they're trying to offer, trying to incentivize more and more students to come offering better benefits, you know, like uh, more scholarships. And so that's also hitting their bottom line as well, too. We talked about the students and what will happen to them. There's 900 undergraduate students of that number that you talked about. Yeah. Uh, Anyone that has 60 hours uh, completed and is in good standing will be able to go through something called this teach-out program. Tell me a little bit about that and how that's different from just deciding to transfer to any school. Yeah, so uh, they'll get guaranteed admission to uh, nine uh, different uh, uh, institutions throughout Northeast Ohio. Um, uh, It's Cleveland State, Baldwin-Wallace, Hiram, uh, John Carroll, Kent State, Lake Erie College, Ursuline, Walsh, and Mercyhurst University in Erie, Pennsylvania. I didn't, Close. That was a, a surprise one there. Yeah. Um, and there might be more uh, agreements worked out as time goes on here because uh, they're ending at the end of this spring semester. So there's a little bit more time here. Uh, but yeah, uh, so it's current students in good standing, quote unquote. Uh, and those with less than 60 completed credit hours may have the opportunity to transfer to a partner institution and receive those benefits as well. They say may. So not clear exactly what that means. But. Right. Uh, so for students, that's what we see is the possibility of transfer uh, for the staff, and it's extensive. W- yeah. What do we? What happened? Then you had the numbers on staff. Yeah, full it was and part-time. It, it's all, uh, almost four hundred or so um, part-time and full-time staff. Uh, it's staff it's a, and, t- and and faculty. and faculty. It's a lot of people, and uh, the the uh, college says they're offering you know HR support as they're trying to do uh, you know transitioning them out. Uh, to other jobs, but you know, I'm not really clear on on what that'll look like exactly. I'm sure that they're trying to help them as best they can. Uh, you know, it, maybe some of these other partner institutions might have openings as well. I'm sure that they probably are are sharing those as well with them. So. As we mentioned, this is facing all kinds of colleges locally. Yeah. You know, Lake Erie College is a small college. Ursuline College is a small college. There's a bunch of these little colleges. But then, as you get a little bit bigger too, Baldwin Wallace has a huge deficit issue. So what you've been tracking is yeah. is really a, a sort of a, a crisis and maybe a correction. 
Yeah, and ironically, this will be a boon for Baldwin Wallace and colleges like that. I mean, Baldwin Wallace just said they just had to cut 25 staff, uh, or they will be soon. So, or 23, 25? Uh, Somewhere around there. Yeah, I get that corrected at some point. Uh, But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, that's the thing that we're going to have to be seeing. Uh, So Eastern Gateway Community College over in Steubenville and Youngstown, uh, they announced that they're amid some financial challenges and also some allegations of financial mismanagement, too, as well. They're going to have to enroll, like, 7,000 students elsewhere, uh, Youngstown State and elsewhere. So uh, what we might be seeing with some of these colleges closing is it could be a boon for some of these other colleges that are also struggling. So might be kind of a consolidation that we might be uh, hmm. in, in, in the running for kind of down the road a bit. Well, I know Connor is going to be working on follow-ups, uh, and we'll continue to do that. I know you're interested in hearing from students at, uh, at Notre Dame. Yeah, that's a really big one. Students and staff at Notre Dame, uh, I'd love to hear from you. It's uh, cmorris at ideastream.org. Please reach out if you'd like to talk. All right, see the initial C, M-O-R-R-I-S, at ideastream.org. Perfect. You can also uh, feel free to just send an email to soi at ideastream.org. Those on the Sound of Ideas team are happy to forward any information. If you're a faculty member, a student, a parent, somebody that wants to uh, talk a little bit about what's going on at Notre Dame College, that's the way to get through to Connor. Um, we are now going to move to another uh, area that you've been busy covering. It's been a busy week for you, Yeah, Connor. absolutely. Uh, the Cleveland Board of Education has approved a plan to cut more than $130 million from the budget of the Cleveland Metropolitan Schools. We talked about this last week. Now this week, the board finally said, yeah, let's do this, and they're sending it along to the Ohio Department of Education and workforce approval. Based on five-year forecast, the district says it'll have a negative cash balance at the end of the next fiscal year. So, Connor, where are these cuts going to come from? Yeah, so um, there's a couple of areas. I mean, the main thing that uh, we should start with is this really zeroing out pandemic relief-funded programs. So one big one is after-school programs that are uh, hosted by external partners, so like the Boys and Girls Club in Northeast Ohio, for example. Uh, before the pandemic, the district wasn't really funding these external programs. And so their argument is, hey, look, they were doing it before the pandemic. They can do it now. They can continue these programs. We're going to try to work with them and see you know, what help we can provide. But we got to cut our support out. Uh, it was sizable last year. It was about $17 million. Right. So to go from nothing to $17 million and then now back to nothing again is kind of a, a big jump. So these providers are concerned. Parents are concerned. Parents really... From what I understand, parents really like these programs because there's a gap in between when the kids get off school and when uh, they get off work. It's about two hours, sometimes three hours. Some people work late into the night, too, as well. So, I mean, it gives them some peace of mind and also help with homework and snacks, too, as well, too, which is everyone loves snacks. Um, (laughs) Who doesn't? But but, uh, the other uh, big cut in terms of pandemic relief funding is uh, summer programming. They're cutting that. They're still going to offer it, and at a higher level than before than before the pandemic, actually. Uh, but it was it was a pretty big expense. So they're cutting down the amount of seats. Still going to be boosting instruction time with it, though. So the CEO's kind of bid here is CEO Warren Morgan. That is, uh, let's you know reduce the amount of seats. Still boost the quality of instruction we're giving them. So maybe a little less fun, a little more work, a little more work maybe. Um, for the students, uh, but it's still those are those together are going to be quite a bit of savings, and then um, we can uh, chat a little bit more about this down the road a bit. But uh, some cuts to central administration as well. No, that too. I mean, you'd say that now they're gonna they're gonna cut positions. Yeah, so twenty five positions uh, immediately. That's about five million in cuts, five million six million in cuts, uh, and that's going to be you know could be people fired, could be positions removed. The bigger th- 
cut that's coming down the road is there's about 40 million in cuts that have not been identified yet in the central office area. And the CEO has really been trying to say, look, we're trying to preserve our academic core. We don't want these to hit the classroom door. You know, we don't want this to affect the quality of education. But even still, the the union president wasn't too happy at the at the school board meeting. I mean, earlier had said, we're glad these cuts are not coming into our classrooms. But but Sherry Obrensky had some words at the at the meeting. Yeah. And it was yeah um, more than the allotted time, too, as well. She was gaveled. Uh, the board chair, uh, Sarah Elikad, said, you know, look, we gave you uh, three times more time than than other folks are getting here. Uh, to, to speak, and you've got more access to us than other people. So that was a tense moment there during the board meeting for sure. But but Sherry was saying, uh, the teacher, Cleveland Teachers Union's president, Sherry Rancy, she was saying that uh, the district manufactured this, this deficit. She was saying that because this pandemic relief was going away, everyone knew it was going away. She said the district budgeted as if the, those programs were going to continue, and so it made it look a lot worse than it actually was. Hmm. And so she was really upset by that and was saying, you're really scaring people when in reality we were going to have to zero out these pandemic relief-funded programs anyway. Interesting. Council's not happy about it, Abby, and we talked a little bit about this last week too, but Richard Starr particularly wearing a shirt that says, <laughs> who's getting fired? Yeah, I want to know who his t-shirt guy is because he got that turned around quickly. <laughs> yeah, he, he said that on Thursday and then no, it, it turned was, around on... It was uh, Tuesday of last week. Oh, Tuesday, um, okay. And Mayor Justin Bibb comes to the first day of the city budget hearings. And Richard Starr took the opportunity to basically say, who are we holding accountable for this? Who's getting fired? And so I showed up to the Monday City Council caucus meeting uh, where CEO Warren Morgan came in to speak and kind of hash out the and lay out what Connor was talking about. Um, and over his, you know, tie and dress shirt, he's wearing the T-shirt that says, who's getting fired? Uh, so it was <laughs> a pretty strong message. And he wore it throughout the day. And of course, in the council evening meeting, too. Um, he says he wants to go to Columbus and lobby for more council oversight when it comes to the school district, which we'll get into a little bit, I'm sure, as it relates to the school board. But, yeah, ca- council wasn't happy. And it wasn't even necessarily that they were targeting anger at the CEO, who has only been at the helm of the district for about seven months. Uh, they said, we need to look at other leadership. How did we get here in the first place? Um, you know, our kids are going to suffer because of this. We also heard from council the idea of possibly returning to an elected school board. It's an appointed one now. Right. Mayor has control of schools, but that's that's a big departure. It is, and I, and maybe Connor can speak into to more what of what goes into this. However, Mike Polenzik did say, you know, we need more accountability. Uh, he asked. There were many people in that room uh, from the school, and he said, "Who here is from the school board?" And no one raised their hands. And he said, "That's the problem. I don't know who's on the school board. There's no accountability, no oversight." So he was really advocating for a mayoral uh, a departure from the mayoral appointed school board to an elected system. And, it's- and we've had an elected system, by the way. I've been around here mm-hmm. for a while. And the, that was often a lot of demagoguery and, and uh, showboating, uh, yeah. depending on who the person was. I'm sure there were some that were doing great stuff, but there was a lot of there were a lot of issues with the elected school board as well. Yeah. And that was a, a 1997, I think, when that was changed and the district was having budget problems at the time as well. And actually, Richard Starr mentioned that. I have some of Richard Starr mentioned mm-hmm. that as well, too, that. There are budget problems then, the budget problems now, and this is necessitating a change, he's arguing. The board members, meanwhile, on Tuesday night, they were saying, look, 
this yeah. pains us to do this. We don't want to make cuts. We think that people deserve to get paid what they're gonna that that, that they mm-hmm. you know desire to be paid. Um, you know. And uh, they they were really trying, and this board um, they've really been trying to be more actively involved. I mean, we've been seeing this, mm-hmm. and um, the, the mayor appointed uh, some new members uh, last year as well. So there's been some 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 leadership changes as well too, and that's yeah. part of this too as well. We have uh, Akron facing budget problems as well, and you've talked about those, but. Now they're saying we want to have all-day kindergarten, which is going to cost millions of dollars. How is that, uh, that was a, jiving? That was a very interesting, uh, yeah, kind of a surprise. It just came in the middle of a discussion about the district's redistricting plan. District's redistricting plan. Um, <laughs> uh, during uh, the meeting this week, board meeting this week. And the CE, or the superintendent uh, there, uh, Michael Robinson, said, uh, yeah, uh, we got to actually consider the fact that we're moving to full a full day of uh, preschool next year as we're looking at these changes to buildings. And one of the board members is like, wait, what? And so uh, the some background, uh, the superintendent has called for moving from a half day of preschool to a full day of preschool. Uh, it costs about $6 million or so each year, $6.5 million each year for the, the half day. Likely going to cost quite a bit more. Uh, the district says, look, we want to send out some surveys this week. We want to see who's interested. Actually, even start enrollment this week, which, is, which was a surprise to us, education reporters. Uh, and... So they're going to try to see how many people are interested, then see how many classrooms they need to open, how much staff they need to to increase. Uh, but the the superintendent said, hey, he's all gung-ho about it. He says, we need to do this. Uh, there's research that shows that it really helps students uh, get kind of ready for school and to not come in so far behind, which is a big problem in Akron all and right. Cleveland, too. Let's address uh, a, another school issue, this one involving state universities public universities in Ohio. And Karen, jump in on this one. Some of the universities are eliminating race-based language from their scholarship awards. The move comes after Attorney General Dave Yost told university leaders that he views race-based criteria as unconstitutional in light of the U.S. Supreme Court decision last year that reversed affirmative action, essentially. Uh, The Supreme Court ruling dealt with affirmative action, not scholarships, but Yost views them as included in the court's ruling, Karen. Yeah, and uh, my colleague Sarah Donaldson has been leading the way on this. She broke the story. Um, And specifically, you've got these colleges and universities that uh, manage both public and private scholarships. So scholarships that are funded with public dollars, as well as scholarships that were created by private donors who have set certain rules on who gets those scholarships, because there are certain criteria for all scholarships. And so Yost apparently told the universities the day after that ruling that you need to look at that language. And his spokesperson says the idea behind this letter and and telling the universities this is that when the court said eliminate race-based language, eliminate all of it. And so now you have Ohio's two largest universities, Ohio University and Ohio State, going through their scholarships and eliminating that race-based language. And so it's, we've also reached out to a couple other universities still trying to find out if, if they're doing the same thing. But it potentially is a big change for some of these scholarships that were earmarked toward specific categories of students. They're now going to have to look at how they're going to do that differently. So there's now pushback, though, on that move. Oh, yeah. 
You've got uh, faculty and donors who are pushing back, saying that some of these scholarships were specifically targeted at certain students to increase diversity, to to bring in certain students who might not have a chance otherwise. And so the question then becomes, how do you do that? Because the colleges, the universities administer these funds. Well, you've got uh, the possibility that the people who are donating to these scholarships will just start donating to students directly as opposed to going through the, the college or university. And so it it does bring up an interesting fallout from that Supreme Court decision that it was just on, that according to the uh, Attorney General, it wasn't just on admissions, it was also on other things that specifically relate to higher education. Okay. Well, I know you'll be following that. Actually, Sarah will be following that. And so we'll be uh, eager to see updates. Meanwhile, we've got to take a quick break right now. When we come back, we are going to talk about a couple of other stories. One, the remake of Cleveland Hopkins International Airport, and another, fracking under Ohio's Salt Fork State Park. It's the Sound of Ideas Reporters Roundtable. I'm Mike McIntyre. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Sound of Ideas Reporters Roundtable from IdeaStream Public Media. I'm Mike McIntyre, joined this week by Connor Morris and Abby Marshall here in studio at the Idea Center. And at the State House News Bureau, Chief Karen Kassler is there. Let's go to Cleveland Hopkins International Airport. The city of Cleveland says it's reached a deal with airlines to fund the $175 million first phase of a project to modernize the airport, and it could use a lot of work. The total project, which could take more than 10 years, is projected to cost $3 billion. Abby, interesting. So we've talked about stadium funding and Mm -hmm. how we're going to build these things. In this case, they're talking about a needed redo, which would basically be like what a dome stadium plus would cost. And the airlines would pony up. Right. Well, without an airport, there are no airlines. Good point. (laughs) So it does kind of make sense, especially when you're talking about these much needed uh, renovations that you're talking about. um, And especially as the airport has kind of shifted over the years, as United has dehubbed Hopkins in 2019, which kind of caused a shift to more local travelers, which created, you know, the need for more parking because you're not necessarily renting a car, more drop off space, things like that. and COVID has obviously changed the way that travel has happened as well. Yeah, this study happened in 2019. Uh, it was five years after that dehubbing. Basically, as you said, describing uh, Hopkins as a different kind of airport. It's mm-hmm. not. It's called an international airport, but it's really a local airport. Right. And, and I, I do think it'll be interesting to see how that shifts because, I, as I reported last year, as they were adding some more routes, I believe that they said that they've not only returned to pre-pandemic levels, but they have now exceeded it. And I think part of that has to do with some of these airlines that have come in. For example, Frontier recently announced that they are going to make Cleveland a hub and bring a crew base next month in March, uh, which means new direct routes to places like last year. I think I reported Puerto Rico, things like that. Right. Um, and at least 400 jobs to the base, which they say is expected to generate nearly $80 million in local wages. I also don't mean to say it's not at all international. There is that direct flight Aer Lingus to yes. Dublin, which I've taken, and it's awesome. Oh, you took that? I did take it. Okay, yes. great. Um, I've got a question here um, from one of our uh, listeners, from Dan. says, I recall hearing airlines don't like to use Cleveland Hopkins International Airport because our landing and takeoff fees are among the highest. Won't Hmm. this aggravate that issue, which means less travel opportunities? And Lee Barr uh, did a little bit of research, 2018 uh, story in uh, 
the plain dealer, airlines that operate out of Cleveland Hopkins International Airport pay some of the highest fees in the nation, higher than Chicago, Los Angeles, and wow. Pittsburgh, a fact that could limit the airport's ability to finance major construction projects in the future. So yes, that is an issue. The fees that are already being paid, I'm sure that's part of what the negotiation is when they're sitting at the table saying, we're going to need you all to pay $3 billion for this redo. Right now, we'll start with $175 million and see where we go. What's interesting is that $175 million doesn't build you anything. Or not much anyway, Abby. Most of that is for non-construction stuff. Right. So that will mostly include an expanded ticketing uh, and gate area, new customs and security areas, more parking, as I mentioned, which is needed, and better roadway access. Uh, The money will also be used to help demolish the uh, Sheridan Cleveland Airport Hotel later this year, which will be used for more parking. However, plans in the future kind of go toward a relocated car rental facility, which I reported last year will be funded in part by a rental car tax at the airport, as uh, well as later phases, which will include rerouting the roadways actually in and out of the airport as well. All right. 10 years. 10 years from now, it's going to be a jewel. (laughs) <laughs> I right? Listen, I love the airport. I, I am advocating for flying, more flying carpets. My favorite part of going to the airport is getting on those little things and like whizzing by. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll have to try that sometime. Uh, a state commission has granted a West Virginia company the exclusive rights to frack for natural gas under Ohio's largest state park, Salt Fork. The decision from the Oil and Gas Land Management Commission permits Infinity Natural Resources to negotiate with state regulators for a permit to drill. The same panel also approved fat fracking bids for out-of-state companies uh, to frack under two wildlife areas. Encino Energy will negotiate permits to drill Valley Run Wildlife Area in Carroll County and Zapernik-run wildlife area in Columbiana County. Karen, state lawmakers who pushed the bill uh, to make it easier to frack Ohio state lands point to the revenue stream that will come in as a result of it. Now we have contracts that are let out. How much is the state getting? Well, the state will get almost $60 million in bonuses, $59 million, $59.7 million to be precise, and also each approved lease has a statutory 12.5% royalty on production. So we're talking about uh, some significant money here, but this is money that state lawmakers have talked about as being a big deal. Senate President Matt Huffman even said when he was speaking to a group of oil and gas producers that he expects this to be a great revenue generator. You've heard some lawmakers talk about maybe this could even help the state get rid of the state income tax. So there is definitely an interest in looking at fracking on public lands and potentially allowing even more of it. It was a lot of opposition, as you can imagine. It is on uh, all of this. It was when they passed, uh, first of all, the legislation that allowed this type of thing. But there was uh, a lot of noise, too, at this particular uh, session. Yeah, the the activists who have opposed this have been pretty dedicated in their opposition. There have been two lawsuits that have been filed, but they've also shown up at all these Oil and Gas Land Management Commission meetings to demonstrate how frustrating this process has been for them. Because there is a state law that shielded the names of the companies from public view up until this point. And so they felt very left out of the process in that respect. But also the, the law that was just passed in 2022 did make it a lot easier for fracking to go ahead and and happen. And so they've been very frustrated. They showed up with signs. They showed up in dressed in uh, sackcloth, a couple of them that uh, indicated drought and climate change and some of the other things that they say will result from this. But they've been very outspoken in their opposition and and tried to stop it. But this is uh, a kind of process that it didn't look like there was going to be any potential stopping it, at least on the activist side. Where do the court cases stand? 
There are two court cases. One was dismissed right before this meeting that allowed this meeting to go forward. There is one other one that is specifically related to that 2022 law, and that one's still in process. So we're waiting to hear what happens with that. We should note that when you talk about fracking, we're not talking about there being uh, equipment on state park property. This is or next to it drilling under. Um, that's still a concern. There's traffic. Uh, there's the possibility of spills, those types of things. Lots of, of the concerns have been raised. Do we know when the drilling might begin so that we can look at this and, and see what the result is? Well, and that's a great point that you bring up. And uh, Governor Mike DeWine has said there will be no fracking in state parks with the imagery that you just put out there. But of course, if you're drilling under the state parks, you do have obviously there are some potential impacts here. And so it will be interesting to see once this process goes forward, if it does, I mean, it's not going to happen immediately, what actually does result. I mean, right now, these are not, these are just a, a, a uh, they're not a permit to drill. They're just, they bid approvals and then they have to go through the regulatory process. It could take a while. Uh, Infinity Resources, who, who you mentioned at the beginning, said they plan to begin drilling by January 1st of 2025. But, you know, the process, uh, the regulatory process is what it is. So that's going to be the next step. All right. Now we've got you on the hook. Uh, I want to ask about another thing that you've been covering. Former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder has filed an appeal of his conviction in a federal racketeering trial last year. Householder is serving a 20-year sentence for accepting $61 million bribes that helped put him back in power and lead to the passage of House Bill 6. His filing contends it's not a bribe. It's something that's protected under the Constitution. Yeah, and we've been waiting for this appeal for a while. He had always said he was going to appeal. Uh, at one point, he had wanted to file an appeal that was 20,000 words long, which is a lot of words. <laughs> uh, but uh, the argument that he's making here is that basically there was no explicit agreement for a bribe, and there has to be one for a bribe to really have happened. You can't just you know, nudge each other, winks and nods, that kind of a thing, to have that be an understanding that a a criminal act, the bribery act, was committed. And so that's one of the arguments here. He's also making some arguments that uh, the FBI special agent Blaine Wetzel, who a lot of this case was uh, centered around, that he really didn't know what was going on other than just simply reading text messages. He really didn't have as as big a grasp of this as, as he seemed to have claimed. And basically the whole idea is that this is just ordinary conduct. It's not political corruption and public corruption just in and of itself. I, I think I can hear people saying, come on. <laughs> I mean, it's $61 million. The case has been laid out about what the quid pro quo was. The company that did the uh, the bribing has admitted to it and, and paid a massive fine as a result of it. But Householder is saying it was simply a payment and it's protected by the First Amendment. Yeah, and I mean, he has the right to make these arguments in court, but you do have to consider that when we followed this trial last year, this was a very complicated case that the prosecution made to the jury, and the jury went along with what the prosecution told them. And and this was a, a difficult case to prove, and it was proven. And so that's... 
you have to look at that when you're uh, considering this appeal. And also, Householder is pushing back on the judge, Judge Timothy Black, who Black was pretty direct in his very strong criticism of Householder at his sentencing, but also had made critical comments toward Householder's lawyers throughout the process. He had really kind of seemed to run out of patience at several different points. And so uh, Householder is trying to make the argument that uh, Black made some errors in the court as well. All right. Thank you for that, Karen. And Abby, want to ask you about Cleveland's budget hearings. They continued this week. You covered them last week and this week as well. Um, the proposal from Mayor Justin Bibb uh, looks like it may be heading to the cutting room floor, and that's the one where he wanted to pool all the vacancies and then basically be able to fill places, fill openings quickly, not necessarily based on there's three in this department, 10 in that department. Right. He's got a big pool, and he could say, I need eight over here and one over there. But the council says not a great idea. Yeah, council has been kind of opposed to this since it was proposed. Uh, the idea is basically, as you said, taking about uh, 125 vacant positions, putting it in a pool that any department, I guess, can pull from based on need. Aside from public safety, those are still budgeted out. Last week, uh, we kind of saw these negotiations in play when the Bibb administration did propose putting back 20 uh, housing inspector positions back into building and housing to help with this residence first housing code overhaul enforcement uh, that we are going to see ramping up here soon. However, council has kind of viewed this as potentially stepping on their toes and, and their oversight because council, the mayor does make his proposal and council has the final say on approving and making sure that the budget goes through. And in this case, they would just be approving uh, a, a general here are some jobs and not necessarily where those jobs would go. So that will be one of the things And when I was covering the caucus meeting on Monday, uh, President Council President Blaine Griffin said his goal is not to line item amend the entire budget, but rather bring to the Bibb administration five or six concerns of council, this being one of them, to negotiate and hash out. And he says his goal is to either, you know, scrap it entirely or make sure that hiring happens in a way that it normally does. I would think the mayor would argue that as the chief executive, he should have the flexibility to know where positions are urgent and he should be able to fill them. What council is saying is traditionally it's been us deciding what staffing level should be in that. And that so really it's a power struggle. Who gets to decide? Sure. And that's, you know, the branches of government. Um, also, I think part of it, too, is, is as council members have said, as it relates to the public safety positions that are being cut, the some of these unfilled officer positions, once you take those away, it is hard to put it back is basically their argument. So, you know, if we take all these positions out of building and housing, for example, or, or law or, or whatever it is, how will we try to put those positions back in the future? Let's talk about some positive news for nearly 300,000 Metro Health patients. They're going to get a letter soon telling them that their medical debt to the hospital system has been erased. Metro Health says it's zeroed out more than $200 million in debts uh, for those patients. Connor, Metro Health is partnering with the same nonprofit RIP medical debt as the city of Cleveland did last year. Yep. Uh, yeah. So that's they've canceled medical debt for 290, almost 300,000 uh, patients. It's a total of more than 200 million. Um, the health system announced, uh, you know, recently. Uh, you know, their folks are receiving letters already, and I actually have a friend of mine who uh, received a letter in the mail recently, unprompted, uh, didn't need to apply for it or anything, just kind of came, and they're like, "Wow, awesome. this is." She's like, "This is great." 
so the way that works, Abby, is you contract with this organization. You're able to get the debt uh, cleared off. Based mm-hmm. on reporting from our health reporter, Taylor Wisner, Cleveland's been pleased with the results of its medical debt forgiveness so far. Yeah, so last year, Cleveland City Council approved $1.9 million of its federal uh, American Rescue Plan Act dollars, which, again, those are one-time funds from the federal government intended to help those most impacted by the pandemic to relieve some of that medical debt through RIP Medical Debt, uh, which is the nonprofit that purchases outstanding debt from local hospitals. Council members are saying that they are hearing from residents that this has been a huge relief. I mean, it's just one less thing to worry about. As we've talked about before, as it relates to student loans and things like that, it it really is a huge hindrance to people that maybe want to buy a home or have children or do whatever. And this is just something that's always looming. So it, it is a major relief for so many Cleveland residents, especially many of whom live below the poverty line. And now just uh, whether you're a Cleveland resident or not, if you're one of those 300,000 that were patients at Metro Health and owe them money, good news coming in the mail for you as well. (laughs) All right, we'll take a quick break right now. Our final one of the program, we come back, we've got plenty more to talk about. (laughs) The high school rock-off is ending, and we're going to talk a little bit about dollar stores in Canton. There's enough of them. It's the Sound of Ideas Reporters Roundtable. I'm Mike McIntyre. Stay tuned. And welcome back to the Sound of Ideas Reporters Roundtable. Glad to have you with us. I'm Mike McIntyre with Karen Kassler, Abby Marshall, and Connor Morris. Number of stories to still get to, and we've got kind of a lightning round. A little bit of time left, though. Uh, Canton Mayor Bill Shearer says the city has enough dollar stores. He's working with city council to pass a moratorium on new dollar store openings. Plan is to ban new dollar stores for a year, require any new ones to offer fresh produce as well. You don't see that in dollar stores. Mm -hmm. According to reporting in the Canton Repository, the city has about 20 such discount stores. Connor, actually a larger national trend about dollar stores. Cleveland took action on this uh, two years ago. Yeah, folks are concerned. They say that, uh, you know, dollar stores attract crime because they've got lean staffing, uh, talking about not keeping up their property. There's trash, uh, concerns about trash. Uh, selling unhealthy foods too, as well. Um, certain parts of you know Cleveland and Canton are considered uh, "quote unquote" food deserts, and um, you know so they're they're concerned about the offerings that are available. Some of these some of this legislation also is just b- barring another dollar store from being built, you know, within two miles of another small box discount retail store, as they call them. Um, Abby, did you want to? Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, I mean, I covered Akron City Council and Cleveland City Council. And in both places, uh, dollar stores have been a major point of contention for council members. A lot of people will say that they're predatory because, as Mike mentioned, they don't have a lot of healthy options for people. Um, and, and they tend to go into neighborhoods where people can't afford otherwise. But it also can be really devastating, as you were saying, to local uh you know, mom and pop shops as well. So in Cleveland, with the with the moratorium that had passed there, do you know if there's been any impact from that, any effect? Uh, fewer dollar stores, at least fewer opened. Yeah, yeah, I think fewer opened. Again, that legislation predates my time covering City Hall. However, uh, it, it continues to be something that is brought up a lot. So it is interesting to see this trend kind of continu- continue regionally. All right. Karen, state lawmakers want to prevent foreign citizens and organizations from giving money to fund ballot campaigns in Ohio. Senate Bill 215 passed this week along party lines, Republicans in favor, Dems against. Federal and state laws already prohibit non-U.S. citizens from donating to candidates. This would expand that then to these campaigns. It's aimed at one group in particular, the 1630 Fund. 
Yeah, this is a progressive dark money group that, interestingly enough, has donated to three recent campaigns in Ohio. The campaign against issue one in August of last year, that's the one that would have raised the threshold to pass constitutional amendments to 60%. They also donated for issue one in November. That was the Reproductive Rights and Abortion Access Amendment. And also donating to the effort to try to get a redistricting proposal on this fall's ballot. So those are three issues that Republicans were very concerned about. So it's interesting that this is now the focus of a bill that they just passed. And uh, the, the whole idea of dark money, of course, is a concern because dark money groups do not have to disclose their donors. And so there's a lot of questions about where that money comes from. There are dark money groups on the progressive side and on the conservative side, but this one specifically seems to be targeted toward the more progressive groups because they've been involved in these campaigns. Right. But as you mentioned, dark money groups comes, uh, come in all shapes and sizes. There have been dark money contributions to other issues as well, the anti-issues. Right. And uh, now this does not affect, of course, uh, domestic donations. And like in uh, the issue one campaigns last year, the pro issue one in August, the anti issue one in November, there was a billionaire from Illinois, Richard Uline, who was donating to that. This would not affect that. This specifically is targeted at foreign investors. And the 1630 fund has uh, a Swiss billionaire who's very involved in that. And, uh, you know, the, the argument has been we don't want foreign interference in our elections. Uh, the argument, of course, on the other side of that is there has been foreign interference in our elections, and, and there's already evidence that, uh, for instance, the Russians are starting to get into our uh, 2024 elections. But what's also important to note here is that this is a national effort. There are groups that are trying to do this on the national level, and it could potentially harm conservative dark money groups as well because they do have ties to, for instance, there was a, a Russian company, a Russian national, who gave to President Trump's super PAC in 2018. At least that's what a federal indictment says. Uh, Senate Minority Leader Nikki Antonio of Lakewood described this as a sore loser bill. Yeah, she says it looks like it's the kind of thing that would have a chilling effect on future ballot initiatives. And, and we've heard a lot of talk about from lawmakers about how we're going to have so many more ballot issues that that was the reason for issue one in August to raise that threshold to 60 percent or else we're going to have this flood of more and more ballot issues and everything's going to come forward. Well, we haven't had a flood any more than we've had in previous years. I mean, we've had years where we've had big constitutional amendments on the ballot, years that we didn't. And so this potentially could get in the middle of some of those ballot campaigns, but we're not having any more ballot campaigns now than we did before at certain points. Let me ask you about one other story. It's playing out in Columbus, but it's involving Geauga County, the judge there, Tim Grindell. Question is, will he face any sanctions for his conduct in sentencing two teens in 2020? He jailed them after they refused to visit their father during a custody dispute. Karen, state attorneys have described the sentence as vindictive, citing the father's uh, alleged estrangement and abusive behavior. Now there's a decision that's going to be made in Columbus by a panel of lawyers about whether he should be sanctioned. Yeah, and I want to add one other thing about the the foreign. Uh, oh, sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it would not affect anything related to House Bill Six and Larry Householder and oh. that whole case. Okay. That that's and and it's funny because we keep hearing about things need to change that uh, we can't l allow that level of public corruption to happen again. But that particular piece of legislation would have no effect on anything that happened in House Bill Six. So I should bring that out there. But when it comes to Tim, okay, Grandel, now answer my darn question about Tim <laughs> Grandel, will you? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> 
Tim Grendel, former state lawmaker, um, judge in Geauga County, uh, he, he's been controversial in a lot of different ways. He's had a longstanding feud with uh, the uh, Geauga County auditor. Um, he is in this case accused of a couple things. One of them is, as you mentioned, uh, sanctioning two teenage boys and, and locking them up in juvenile lockup for refusing to visit their father. He said he did that because they were unruly and this was an appropriate punishment. But that's one of the things that's being talked about here. Another thing that's being talked about is Grendel in 2020 came and testified for a bill sponsored by his wife, who was then Representative Diane Grendel, that specifically dealt with COVID data. And the argument in that was that he came and and used his judicial influence to testify about his concerns about the reporting of COVID data and not about legal matters, which is what he as a judge should be testifying about. So this is going to go on for another week or so, and then we hopefully will get a decision from this panel, this uh, Board of Professional Conduct, as it's called. That's what it is. Okay. That's what I was trying to figure out, a panel of lawyers. So the Board of Professional Conduct makes that ruling. And it's part of the Judiciary Committee through the Ohio Supreme Court. So these sanctions could be serious. Okay. Hey, let's talk about an almost unbelievable sports streak that's on the line this weekend. The Brecksville Broadview Heights Bees Gymnastics team will compete tomorrow in the Ohio High School Athletic Association Gymnastics Championship. The Bees are trying to win their, do you know how many in a row, Karen? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> Take a guess. Um, 10. 21. Wow. Ooh, this would be nice. their 21st consecutive state title. I mean, go is that bees. unbelievable or Let's what? Let's go bees. Let's go bees, indeed. Uh, we've got this re- we had a really uh, excellent conversation Wednesday with the coach, Maria Schneider. Uh, and you'll find that conversation linked on our show page today. There's a great video of Jemmy, Jenny Hamill's visit to the Brexville gym as well. But good luck to the bees. We really uh, are, are pulling for you there, although I don't think they need our help. If they're 20 in a row, I, I think they're, they're on pretty good, a pretty good roll. Um, here's another, uh, I like the lighter fare near the end of the program. Here's another one. Uh, Wendy's, the Ohio-based fast food chain, said in a social media report this week it plans to test surge pricing, right? And so I heard all kinds of media mm-hmm. talking about it. was even on the Howard Stern Show. What? They're going to raise prices when people are, are mo- most likely to go? They've said, actually, it's the opposite. They're going to reduce prices during non-peak hours so you can get your double what are they what are they square hamburgers double square hamburgers where's the beef <laughs> but you can the get them baconator the baconator that's it there you go you can get them you can get them cheaper uh w- what they call dynamic pricing but it's a lot of people are freaked out about this you you know you want to know what you're going to pay for your not good for you burger mm. right. and uh and now it's uh it's going to be lower at some days it's day parts and higher at others yeah does the five dollar well, biggie bag become the six dollar biggie bag well no <laughs> the four for four connor and i the were just four reminiscing four. before this we both yeah. went to ou the yeah. uh, on court street there used to be a wendy's it's it's gone now r.i.p but the four for four was a, a staple of that diet Help people survive. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. (laughs) The four for four. This seems to be a really bad uh, communication error here because (laughs) if we all thought it was going to be surge pricing up like it is for Uber and and things like that, and it was the other way, I mean, this just didn't seem like the message was very clear. Who's getting fired? Give me that shirt. Who's getting fired from Wendy's? (laughs) And by the way, at OU, though, I did not go there, but I happen to be an expert because I have friends that did, and I go often. They still have Obetis. Yes. Oh, yeah. You can get a hot dog from a window. 
restaurant two thirty. Ohio, fight me on it. (laughs) (laughs) I will not fight you. I'm on your side. I will defend you to the death on that one. Uh, Let me let me also bring up the Lakefront Trail in Mm -hmm. uh, in Cleveland. Justin Bibb, the mayor, has introduced legislation. The city council create a three mile long trail that'll run along North Marginal between downtown and East 55th Street, the marina there. The operation of the trail would involve the Cleveland Metro Parks. It's a pretty huge deal. We often hear about how there is access to the lake west mm-hmm. of, of downtown. This would be a, a real amenity east of downtown. Yeah, and we know that I love the lake, Mike, and I love lakefront access. Um, so, yeah, they'll, they'll basically, City Hall will have to first give the county permission to move ahead with construction, and Metro Parks would then operate and maintain that trail. It'll be a 20-year lease with Metro Parks with a possible extension for 100 years. Uh, maintenance, police patrol, trash, snow, all that good stuff. We love lakefront access. All right. Uh, Michelle sends in an email. She wants to get involved in the conversation. That's a way to do it, by the way, with the roundtable. Send us an email or you can tweet at Sound of Ideas. The email is soi at ideastream.org. But she talked about being, is it pronounced Zepernick Lake or Zepernick Lake? I don't know. I, don't I haven't know. been to the lake. Michelle, I'm sorry, but I think it's Zepernick Lake uh, State Park. She said she's been there in Columbiana County a lot. There's, it's a very small lake. She's concerned about the fracking there. And she says it's unbelievable the state house would give away our state parks and expose them to the byproducts that will come from fracking. So that's her concern. That's Michelle's. We'd love to have you weigh in on any of the topics that we address uh, today, uh, too. Finally, um, actually not finally, uh, next to finally, uh, Ohioans love to joke that if you hate the weather, just wait five minutes. You'll get something completely different. (laughs) Well, it lived up to that this week. Summer temperatures at the beginning of the week. People are out at the golf range and all kinds of stuff. Crash back to snow on a cold day Wednesday afternoon. Yesterday, traffic snarled. Did you guys have trouble getting in yesterday? No, not really. No, I didn't. Oh, okay, because you both live, both live like, close. Yeah, you yeah, lo- both close. live in the city. Believe yeah. me, if you were on any of the highways yesterday, uh, it was a nightmare. And uh, now we uh, are coming into, I think Sunday is supposed to be like perfect again, 67 Ooh. and sunny. Although, Karen, a little more uh, serious in Columbus, the collision of these winter and summer temperatures led to strong storms, at least four tornadoes confirmed oh. in your area. Yeah, I mean, I woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning to tornado sirens going off, which is a really scary thing. And it's happened across the country where you've seen tornadoes hit in the middle of the night. And fortunately, I live in an area with tornado sirens. There are parts of the state that don't have them or they're not working or whatever. And so this was, it's really scary. We usually get this kind of weather like in April. And here we are at the end of February getting it. Yeah, Didn't sure. the groundhog say early spring? Who's getting fired? Oh, there you <laughs> Phil. Get a little <laughs> tiny groundhog shirt. <laughs> All right. Tomorrow is going to mark the end of an era for the Tri-C High School Rock Off. Turn on your cell phone flashlights or you're old school like me flick your bick hold it high the final class of bands will compete in the final exam at the rock and roll hall of fame tomorrow winners receive money for themselves and their school's music programs all the finalists get recording time at tri-c studio the tri-c high school rock off started in 97 i'm sad to see it go connor yeah well some of these band names i'm looking at them right now are really good screams of sanity uh running with scissors uh oh my gosh uh, clarence and the beekeepers wow yeah, Great good, names. good stuff. But uh, just a, a tribute, an honor to uh, to the to the rock and roll, uh, to the rock off, to the high school rock off. The Tri C has put together since 1997. Absolutely. It's always a great event, and I'm sure something will come to uh, to take its place. All right, that's going to wrap up our program. Uh, I, I got to say, there's there is a guy who still looks like he could compete in a high school music competition, and he'd definitely win. Grammy and Oscar winning singer, songwriter, and musician John Batiste thrilled sold-out crowds at the Cleveland Museum of Art last weekend. This long-shot thing, he was coming between Detroit and Chicago, and Gabe Pollock at the museum said, hey, why don't you come here? And he did. It seats f- 
fewer than a thousand people. Two shows sold out almost immediately. What an event in Cleveland last weekend. So as we uh, get ready to say goodbye, first I say goodbye to you, Abby, and to you, Connor, and Karen. Take care. You too. All right. Sounds like goodbye for good. Oh, my God. No, goodbye for this show. (laughs) We'll see you soon. But we're going to leave you with John Batiste and his Grammy-winning song, Cry. To get the last word on today's topic, send email to soi at ideastream.org. Monday, we'll bring you the latest community tour conversation recorded at the Bop Stop, focusing on jazz in Northeast Ohio. And if you missed any part of the program, listen to the Sound of Ideas podcast. You can get it on any podcast app. You can hear a rebroadcast of this show tonight at 9 on 89.7 WKSU. Check us out on TV tonight at 730 on WVIZ-PBS. I'm Mike McIntyre. Thanks for listening, and stay safe.